You'll find your place in Luke chapter 2, and also if you want to put your bookmark or your thumb in Galatians chapter 4. But as you're turning there, let me say a few words of introduction. Uh, the other day, last week, in fact, when it was so bitterly cold, I went out into my yard to gather sticks, dry twigs and sticks to kindle a fire. Now, if I had gone out and grabbed one branch and broken it up, I wouldn't have had enough to do anything. They'd burn up rather quickly, and nothing would have been kindled. And uh, my wife or children would have said, Dad, what was the point? In the same way as we've gone through Luke's gospel, and we've focused on the unfolding narrative, there are verses that we've encountered that we've passed over, it may seem, that we've looked at but haven't said much about. For example, we can look at verse 80 of chapter 1, and we note here this remark about John, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. A verse that we read, but a verse about which I said very little. And the reason is that these verses in the unfolding narrative of Luke's gospel are much like those branches, much like those twigs. Alone they say something, but in order to really understand their import, we need to get a few of them together. A few of these verses that are similar, that have a similar theme and that are common in various ways. We'll look at Luke 180 in a few weeks when we look at Luke 2, 40 through 52 and see the similarity between the way Luke speaks about Jesus and John's ministry. But today I want to gather up a few of the branches, so to say, that we've gathered in weeks prior, branches that we've set aside that focus on the role of the law in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, in the lives of Joseph and Mary, and in the lives of their two sons, John and Jesus. Because in Luke's narrative, we've already seen to this point that these were people who lived under the law. Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful Israelites, faithful and righteous before God, keeping all the commandments of the Lord, we read. And we saw a particular example of that, not only in Zechariah's ministry in the temple, but also in the fact that they brought John to be circumcised on the eighth day, precisely as it's said in the law. And in the same way, we see unfolding in the text before us this morning in Luke 22, 21 and following, that Joseph and Mary also were faithful Israelites, and they lived their lives in obedience to the law as those under the law. We're going to ask the question, why does Luke draw our attention to these things in Jesus' childhood? Because the other gospel writers don't do this. It's not because they find it unimportant. But Luke particularly wants to direct our attention to this detail in Jesus' life. So we need to see it. But to really understand its significance, we're going to get some help from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4. So that's why we're looking at these two texts then this morning. So if you found your place in Luke chapter 2, in verse 21, follow along please as I read. And we'll read to verse 24. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord 
and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you, O Lord, would illuminate our minds and soften our hearts. Texts like this that stand before us seem not to say very much, except to have some details of historical note. And yet, you and your perfect wisdom inspired your servant Luke to record these details from the life of your son, whom you sent be born of a woman and born under the law. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would teach us from your word why this is important and why this is necessary, why it was necessary that the Christ, when he came, should be born as a man under the law. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I began with that illustration of uh, kindling that you might gather in your yard, dry sticks and twigs and In the same way, we've gathered up several verses in Luke chapter 1 and 2, verses that focus on the way in which the law functioned in the lives of these Israelites in the narrative, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, Jesus and John. But I also mentioned how in Galatians chapter 4, we find an explanation of the significance of that. We'll look at Luke 2 and what's going on here, but let me read Galatians 4, 1 through 7 as well, so that you have this fixed in your mind. Because these verses in Luke are the kindling, but Galatians 4 gives us the log, if you will, that will be set ablaze. It will give us the fire that causes us to understand the significance of what we've read. Here in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now in Luke's Gospel, he gives us the details portrait, a description of what it means when Paul says God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, what did life look like for the son of God when he came under the law? And in this particular example from his childhood, it looked like the child as an infant being brought to Jerusalem, being circumcised first on the eighth day in accordance with the law, and then being brought to the Jerusalem to be consecrated, to be set, asar- set aside as holy because he was Mary's firstborn son. And it looked like Mary coming to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices for her own purification. To understand what's going on, it will be helpful to look at the Old Testament context. The first passage is in Exodus 13, what we heard read this morning. There I won't read the whole thing again, but I will draw your attention to what is going on in Exodus 13. In the context 
Israel has just experienced and kept the very first Passover. Israel's being brought out of Egypt. God is redeeming them from slavery under the Egyptians. And the way in which God redeemed them was by passing over them as he brought a plague on Egypt, that is, a final judgment upon Egypt. And that final judgment was the killing of every firstborn in Egypt. Now, the reason why God passed over the firstborn sons of the people of Israel was not because they were Israelite sons, but because God gave them a means of redemption. That is, a means by which the people of Israel might buy themselves back or be bought back by God. And that means was a substitute. God gave them a lamb the Passover lamb who died in the place, that lamb took the place of the firstborn son so that the Israelites, they, when they came under the blood of that lamb, put on the doorpost of their houses, their sons were redeemed. and did not have to die. That's what Passover was. And it wasn't just something that Israel remembered year by year at a particular time every year. It was something that Israel also remembered every time a firstborn son was born. And that's what Exodus 13 is about. Not only does God give them a feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by which they recall the Passover year by year, but he also commands them in the first two verses saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and a beast, is mine. And this is the passage that Luke refers to when he speaks about them bringing Jesus to Jerusalem. They're fulfilling the requirement of Exodus 13. And we understand later on in this passage, as we read down with the instructions to what God tells them to do when their sons ask about this ritual. There he says, when they ask you, why are we doing this? That you're to give them a particular answer. You're to say, it's because of what God did for us as a people. And to understand then what's happening here is that there's a move from the corporate to the individual. What I mean is that as the firstborn son is redeemed by a lamb, if God says the firstborn is mine, But you don't sacrifice your sons, and so you redeem your sons by offering a lamb in their place. The firstborn is mine. In the same way, Israel is God's firstborn son. That's what Hosea says in 11.2. And when he says, Israel is my firstborn son, he's simply expounding what is shown in the law. That Israel is that firstborn son that God redeemed out of slavery by means of a substitutionary lamb. So this sacrifice was a perpetual reminder of their salvation. They were to keep that year by year. And that's what they are doing here. That's what Luke is recording. They bring Jesus in order to consecrate him and offer that sacrifice. But there's a second ritual, and we read about it in Leviticus chapter, chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. And that ritual concerns the purification that women had to undergo after childbirth. Now, it will be helpful as you turn there to understand what's going on with respect to the law. The law established different statuses, if you will, in uh, uh, in the people of Israel. There were two kind of categories. 
The first category has to do with things that are holy versus things that are common. A thing that is holy is a thing that is set apart. Or again, that word consecrated. A holy thing is set apart to the Lord. And a common thing is just the ordinary stuff of life. And then amongst the common things, they split into two categories. Those things which are clean and those things which are unclean. A clean thing is not so much a dirty thing that has dirt on it, but it is a thing that has come into contact with something that is by nature fallen, that is affected by sin in the world. And childbirth was one of those things. It doesn't mean that a woman was sinful in some way, that she was made unclean by the process of childbirth. But we ought to be reminded that in Genesis 3, when God disciplined the man and the woman for their sin, that that particular judgment that was pronounced applied also to childbirth. In pain shall you bring forth children, he said. That, that childbirth, though it's a cause for joy and rejoicing, it was in some way affected by the fall. And to show that association, it rendered a person unclean. And so a person had to be made clean when they became unclean. And the way that one was made clean was not simply by taking a shower and washing off filth from one's hands, but was they were made clean by a sacrifice that brought them into a state of cleanness. And though that thing has to happen, and that's what Leviticus 12 is about. And so we read in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. And we've seen that those seven days unfold. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised, referring to the child. And we've seen that in verse 21 with respect to Jesus. Then she shall continue for 33 more days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. So 33 more days pass. And Luke refers to then the time when that's completed. And what's going to happen then in verse 5, but if uh, she, she, in verse 5 she speaks about, or he, Moses speaks about what's to be done if the daughter is a female. But then verse 6, and when the days of her purifying are completed, that's the phrase we see in Luke, in the days of her purification, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And she shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And then we have this note in Leviticus 12, 8, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So what we've seen unfold then in Luke is that Mary fulfills this requirement of the law, that she offers for her, uh, for her purification, for her cleansing, the sacrifices. And Luke notes the turtle dove and the pigeons as if a way to say, yeah, she couldn't afford the lamb. And yet in spite of her poverty, in spite of her low estate, she still lives faithfully under the law. She still does that which the law requires. But we need to reflect then on how the law is working in their lives. Because just as Exodus 13 
was a reminder of something more significant, of God's redeeming work in the life of Israel, His saving work for His people. This also, in Leviticus, was a reminder of something that was more necessary. At the end of the day, she did not just need to be cleansed of her impurity from having given childbirth. And it's what she needed is what we all need. We need to be cleansed from the stain of sin. David says in Psalm 51, In sin did my mother conceive me. And he recognized that he needed the Lord to purify him from that sin. A purification that David would say, the blood and bowls of goats cannot accomplish. But through repentance, that's what's necessary. And these things that they were taught to do year by year, birth by birth, were ways of teaching Israel what they needed. The eighth day, think of it in relation to the seven days of creation. The eighth day, symbolic of a new creation. We need a new life. That's why Israel was to circumcise the child on the eighth day. And so too, the cleansing that was accomplished through sacrifice was a sign of one going from something associated with sin and death to life, to cleanness. To cleanness being associated with that which is associated with life and godliness. And so that whole process laid out in Leviticus, Leviticus 12 was a picture of the cleansing that we all need. These things are important then as we understand the role of the law in their lives because not only are they faithfully keeping the law simply as a mechanism by which they can say, well, I'm good, I did what I was supposed to do, I have no idea what it all meant, but I checked the boxes so I'm good before the Lord. But they were doing it because it was what God used in order to teach Israel what it means to be saved and to bring them to a point where they were ready to come to Christ in faith. And so when we take these verses in Luke 2 and we see their details, we want to understand their significance. And so we turn then to Galatians 4. And there, as we read, we find Paul explaining their significance to us. That what is going on here in that Jesus came as one under the law is he came in order to redeem us from under the law so that we are no longer under all of those rituals that they did year by year. We no longer have to keep those things that Israel was commanded to do. Why? Because of the fact that Jesus came as one who was required to keep those things, and he came as the child of parents who were required to do those things in order, as Paul says, to redeem us from under that law. But to understand Galatians 4 and what, how that works and how that functions, we need to understand then Galatians in its fuller context. We'll spend the rest of our morning here then in Galatians 4. Now, Paul is speaking to a church that has a problem. Their problem is that they are Christians who are some Jews and some Gentiles. Their church is composed of Jew and Gentile. Some were born under the law. And some came to Christ apart from the law. In Paul's understanding, in Paul's language, one who is under the law is one who is a servant of the law. One who's under anything is under the mastery of that thing, right? 
And so he can say, for instance, earlier in Galatians, that, that we were redeemed from the curse of the law prior to that redemption. We were under the curse. The curse had power over us. Right? That's the idea of being under the law. That one is under it. And else later in chapter 3, he can speak of being under the law as though under a guardian or under a tutor. This is an important metaphor in Paul's, of Paul's language, that what he's saying to the Galatian church is that you need to understand the fundamental purpose of the law. The law for Israel was like a tutor for a child. Again, think of Israel at this moment as God's firstborn son, not as the nation that lived over the course of centuries. And that son's uh, maturation occurred from, from the time of the giving of the law at Sinai up unto the coming of Christ. That is, he went in under the tutelage of a tutor when Moses received the law at Sinai. And he grew up throughout that whole history, that whole 1,400 years or so. He's a child growing up under the tutelage of the law as his guardian. That's what Paul's saying in, the, in chapter 3 of Galatians. And the problem is, in the Galatian church, there are false teachers who have arisen who are saying to the Gentile Christians, your problem is that you don't keep the law. The example is that you are uncircumcised, and so you men need to be circumcised if you're going to be a Christian. Because look, the Bible says that you shall circumcise every son on the eighth day, and someone coming into the people of Israel from another nation had to be circumcised. So you've got to do it. Paul's saying you fundamentally understood what the law is about. Let me illustrate that. It's as if we all came to church this morning coming down Wilson Street, which runs from west to east, long, the long way from Bundy, and runs right up to the church. But someone came to church this morning down Jackson Court, that short road, that comes around the other direction. And when they came here, we said, well, it's nice to have you. How did you get here? And that person said, well, I came down Jackson Court. And you say, well, we all came down Wilson Street. You can't really worship unless you come the same way that we came. So what you're going to need to do is drive back out the parking lot, go back down Wilson, and come back the way that we came. It would be a pretty ridiculous thing to tell them to do. The Gentiles came into the church apart from the law. And there were Jews in the church who were saying, if you want to come into this congregation, you've got to come the way that we came. And you've got to do the things that we did. You've got to eat the food that we ate. You've got to do the things that we did in terms of the cleansing and in terms of the circumcision and in terms of all these rituals. And Paul is saying to them, you're finding your righteousness in the wrong thing. You're like, you're like someone who's got a Ph.D., telling another person who's got a Ph.D. that because they graduated high school with a GED, didn't drop out of high school and got a GED, they've got to go back to elementary school and start all over again. Paul's saying, you got your Ph.D. You don't need elementary school. You don't need to go back to the tutelage, even if you never had it. Because you, you came to that which the law was meant to point. The law has led you to this point 
And just because you had your early life, Israel, under the tutelage of the law, doesn't mean that the Gentiles coming into the church need to be under that tutelage. They need to learn what's in it. They need to understand how it points to Christ. But the thing that Christ did for us is that he redeemed us from under the law. No, we're not under it. We're not under its mastery. And what Paul's saying here in chapter 4 depends upon the way that adoption functioned in the, old, uh, in the ancient world. Look at what he says in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Right? Now, when we think of adoption, we think of two parents who adopt the child in his or her infancy, or perhaps in uh, early life, and raise that child until that child is 18. But last week, when we talked about Caesar Augustus in the context of Jesus' birth, we saw that adoption in the ancient world functioned in a very different way. A father would adopt an adult man and say, you're my son. You can see that all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 15, when Abraham complains to God, Abram says to God, I'm childless. I have no heir. My heir is who? Eliezer, my slave. My servant is the one who will inherit everything that I have, including the promises you've given me, promises that require me to have an heir, a son. So in Abram's mind, he's going to adopt an adult man and say, you are my heir. In the same way with Augustus we saw last week, Julius Caesar, his great uncle, adopted him. And Augustus left behind his biological father and became as a son of Julius Caesar and took on the name Caesar and took on all of the rights and privileges of one who was the son of Julius Caesar. And this is the way that they thought about adoption in the ancient world. And so what Paul is saying is that when one is a child, before one comes of age, even though he may be a child, he is no different than a slave in their ancient context. That is, he is under the mastery of others. And in the case of children, a father in that ancient world, he would not have told his son that, you're going to, uh, that, uh, that I'm going to raise you and teach you everything. Maybe some fathers in poor settings would, but a wealthy father would have assigned that duty to someone else. He wouldn't have had much of a relationship with the son even. He would have hired a guardian or a tutor. If he wanted his son to be a philosopher, he would have hired a philosopher and he would have basically sent his son off to something like boarding school with that philosopher who would have taught him philosophy. But then the father would appoint a time in that child's life when the son comes of age, and when he comes of age, then he enters into the privileges and the rights of sonship. Then he comes into his inheritance. He can say, I am a son of that man, and all that is his, I, is mine his status, his privilege, and all of those things. And what Paul is saying is that Israel is like that son, and God assigned a time when Israel should come into its maturity. He ordained that time. And in the meantime, he put them under a guardian. That guardian was the law. And so that's what he says in verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, when Israel was a, was a child, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
What he's talking about in that, that phrase is that the fundamental way, the fundamental principles, the basic ideas, if you will. And this, this could refer to something as simple as the, the, the stuff the world is made up of. In the ancient world, you might have referred to the elementary principles as uh, what they thought of as the four basic elements, earth, fire, wind, and water. Or you could refer to, as the elementary principles, the language behind this, uh, as your ABCs, so to say, or your Greek alphabet, from alpha to omega. That's the basic building blocks of the alphabet. It's the basic building blocks of a thing. And so when he says we were enslaved to that, we were under the guardianship is the idea. The guardian, the law, is the elementary principle of the world. It's not to say that it's worldly. It is from God and it is righteous and it is good. But it uses the stuff of the world to teach, that is. It uses things like sacrifice and it uses things like circumcision and it uses things like water for cleansing in order to instruct. It is of the world in that sense. We were under that guardianship, Paul says. But later in Galatians 6, he'll say, I have been crucified to the world. I have, I have died to the world, and the world has died to me. And the law, that elementary principle, is of the world, you see, in that sense. It is from God, and it is righteous, and it is spiritual, but in the sense that it uses the stuff of the world, it is of the world. And Paul's died to it, and it's died to him. And so he can say, in that time, when we were children, we were enslaved to the law, to the elementary principles of the world. But, but, when the fullness of time had come, that is, that time that we've read about in Luke these last several weeks, when God's timing that He had appointed in His sovereign plan came, then God sent forth His Son, and He was born of a woman, as we read last week, that He was He was fully human, that the Son of God became fully man, is the idea. He was born of a woman, and he was born under the law. You see, it was God, Christ could not have come in any arbitrary way. And sometimes we joke about, we say, say it this way, if Jesus were to come in our own time, in our own context, we might imagine what he might live like if he lived in Michigan in the uh, 21st century. But the reality of the situation is that it wasn't any arbitrary time or any arbitrary place where he could come. But it was in the fullness of time, in the time appointed by God, and in the way and the place appointed by God, as one of the people appointed by God, that is, as an Israelite under the law, he had to come under the law so that he could fulfill every righteous requirement of the law as we read in Romans 8 this morning together. Paul has said that in Galatians 3. You see, the problem with the law is that the law has a curse attached to it. Paul will say that in Galatians 3 too, has said that. That there is a curse of the law. Cursed is anyone who does not do the things in the law. That's written there. Meaning, if you fail in one, you failed them under them all. And now not only are you under the law, but you've come under the curse of the law. If you fail in one respect, you're under that curse. But Christ didn't fail in any respect. He had to come under the law so that he might perfectly keep every detail of the law in every single way. 
And if he had not, then Israel would not have been redeemed from under the law and salvation would not have come to the Gentiles. That's what Paul has said. It was necessary for him to come under the law for us to be saved. And so he says, he came under the law and he took on a different curse in the law. For the law also says, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. And he went to a cross and he was hanged on a tree and he took upon himself that curse for us in our place. On the Passover, as the Passover lamb who redeemed us from under the law by becoming a curse for us. So redeemed us from the curse of the law. Do you see what Christ has accomplished? And do you see how the law functions as such a good tutor? We would not have understood our redemption. We would not understand it fully if God had not given Israel Exodus 13, which we read. If he had not given them the Passover from Exodus 12, which we discussed. And we would not understand what it is that he has redeemed us to had he not given them Leviticus 12 concerning circumcision and childbirth and the new life that we so need. But because the law was given and gives us the things by which to understand what it is that God has accomplished for us, then we can look to those things and we can look to Christ and see and understand what He's done. When Paul says that He redeemed us from under the law, He's talking about the fact that Christ took upon Himself the curse of the law when He hung on the tree so that the curse that we were under, we are no longer under because He didn't deserve that curse, the curse of disobedience. So He took the curse of being hanged for us, to make atonement for our sakes. And the result for us is since we are no longer under the law, and Israel is no longer under the law, and even though we, I suspect all being Gentiles, aren't under the law and never have been technically under the law in terms of being required to keep its commandments, we are not under the law we are transferred instead from that phase of guardianship under the law to that stage of life where we are in our maturity as sons of God. Do you see the beautiful symmetry of what Paul is saying? The Son of God became a man under the law so that men and women under the law might be redeemed to be sons of God. That's how the Son of God made us children of God. That's how... We've come into this glorious adoption as sons. And the joyful reality of that sonship is that God has given us the Spirit. That He sent the Spirit in our lives who fills us and is the sign of our redemption, is the proof of our maturity in Christ. Is the proof that we are no longer children, but we are adults in this broad analogy, this broad illustration. And the proof that we have the Spirit is that we cry, Abba, Father, because He 
cries that in our life. In other words, we are the people who, when we pray, pray as Jesus taught, it, taught us, saying, Our Father who art in heaven. We are the people who call Him Heavenly Father because of what Jesus did for us. And that's because He came as one under the law. And so these are not stray details, useless branches in the field. But these are the stuff that kindle the blaze that help us to understand what it is that we say when we say that the Son of God redeemed us. The Son of God has made us sons. That the Son of God has brought us into relationship with our Father in such a way that we call Him Father, our Heavenly Father. So you're no longer a slave, Paul says, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what are we to do with this then, considering the, considering the significance of the law in Jesus' life and the significance of the law in His life for our own lives? Well, we're not to look at it and say that because Jesus was fully obedient to the law, then let's go back and do those things. Now, I'm not saying that we live any way we choose. For the way that Paul talks about the law, he can speak of the law of Moses and he can speak of the law of God. And he can say, I'm not under the law of Moses. And then, parenthetically, he can say, but I'm still under the law of God. I'm still obligated to keep those two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That hasn't changed because God's character hasn't changed and we are still under that law and will be forever and ever. But we're not under the law of Moses. We don't offer sacrifices. We don't keep the feasts. We don't do those ritual things. And we don't replace them with other things. You see, the, the law of Moses gave the people of Israel things that affected their purification and affected their consecration. The means by which the firstborn was consecrated was by redeeming him with a sacrificial lamb. The means by which a woman was cleansed was by cleansing her with a sacrificial lamb or bird. But the means by which we are set apart is the Holy Spirit given our, in our lives and the means by which we are purified and the means by which we are redeemed is by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can ever atone for our sins. And so we don't replace those rituals with other rituals of our own creation that are designed to make us feel good about ourselves, that are designed to make us feel like we're doing something that somehow brings us into a right relationship with God. But God has given us means and forms of worship that aren't meant to affect the change, but are still meant as a remembrance. Just as that act of consecration we read about in Exodus 13 both affected the consecration and reminded through the words that exposited it, through the instruction given to the fathers, reminded them of what God had done. We also have 
things that we do that remind us of what God has done, but they don't affect any change. So in a few minutes, we are going to gather together around this table, and we are going to partake of bread, and we are going to partake of juice. These things don't do anything for us. They don't save us. They don't transform in any way, physically or spiritually. Excuse me. They don't change in any way. They don't impart anything to us. But through them, the Lord does communicate to us His grace by means of reminder. Because what they do is they remind us of what Christ has done. The same is true of the second ordinance that we keep together. Like circumcision, which was not something practiced regularly, but was practiced on an occasion, the occasion of birth, we practice baptism as the second ordinance, which is practiced on the occasion of someone's new birth, demonstrated through their profession of faith in Christ. And it, too, does not cleanse anybody. It doesn't affect our salvation, but it reminds us and testifies to the world of what God has done in us, producing that new life. So there's a difference between what we see in the law. Those things were meant to affect a change. And that change that was affected was only an of-this-world change. But the things that we're given now these two ordinances, they don't affect the change, but they remind us of the real and spiritual and eternal change that God has affected for us in Jesus Christ. And what I want you to understand then, as you consider these things, and as you think of what we're reading in Luke and these passages and these verses that, on the face of them, seem to make no sense, or maybe they make sense, but they... The so what is not completely obvious, particularly with respect to the law. When you see in Luke and when you see in the Gospels the way in which Christ lives faithfully at every turn in accordance with the law, not in just outward action like the Pharisees, but in the internal action of his heart as well. Not only in Godward action that's legalistic, but in a Godward life that flows from a heart that seeks to do everything in accordance with the will of God his Father. Understand that that also was completely necessary for you to be saved. For he could die on a cross, but if he did not die as the perfect and unblemished Lamb of God, he could not take away the sin of the world. Because God sent His Son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, one who lived perfectly in every way in accordance with the law, He redeemed us from under it. So we don't have to return to that life of slavery anymore. But we can rejoice in the joy of knowing that forever, by faith in Him, we are children of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a glorious gospel it is that you have given us. So rich and so full. 
that we can spend the rest of our lives contemplating its truth. It's simple enough that it can be understood by a child. And yet it's beautiful enough in all its facets that we will never exhaust thinking about it. We will never exhaust the richness and fullness of what it is that you have done for us in Christ. We praise you and thank you, O Lord. And we praise, praise you and we pray that you would work in our hearts, O Lord, to produce the circumcision that we most need. Not a circumcision that is rooted in the flesh, but a circumcision that is of the heart, that is brought about by your Spirit's work, that is brought about when you apply your word to our hearts in a way that produces the true cleansing that we most need, that renewal and that new birth that only comes through faith in our Lord and Savior. And so we pray that you would take these words now and impart them to our hearts again and again throughout all our days that we might perpetually and always be reminded of what you've done for us in Christ. We pray all these things in his matchless and precious name. Amen.